Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1 and hear the inspired and errant word of our sovereign God. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag, on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan his son are dead? Then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on a spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. Every word that you give to us is our treasure. Uh, Jesus has said, A man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we want to live by these words that you have given to us. And so we pray for the illumination of our minds, for your anointing upon the preaching, Father, that you would sanctify us as your people and cause us to uh, grow in our application, our understanding, our following of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I wasn't able to uh, verify the source on this, but Donald Trump has been recently quoted a number of times as saying, life is a game and the ultimate scoreboard is money. Now, for some people, the ultimate scoreboard is power. Uh, for other people, it is maybe prestige or fame or achievement in sports or comfort. Some people have such low... Uh, uh, goals that their scoreboard in life is how much TV they can watch uh, as they're sitting on a, a, a couch. But the ultimate scoreboard is really your ambition for life. Your ambition is what drives your life. It's a core of what you value. And your ambition should be to please God in your calling. Now that assumes you know what your calling is, but ambition is a key characteristic of leadership. 
all through the Bible, you will see that the great leaders were men who had great ambition. And I believe this is really part of the dominion urge that God has put into humans. We want our lives to count. And the, the, the more we understand and are driven by our calling, the more ambition that we will have. But it's not enough to have great ambition or to have the right ambition if our ambition is not uh, tempered by God's grace and with godly character and biblical vision, our vision, great vision, can actually be dangerous, even with believers. In Luke chapter 22, the disciples were arguing with each other as to who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of Christ. Now, they maybe thought they were being spiritual, maybe even Christocentric, you know, in their declarations, uh, be greatest in the kingdom of Christ. And yet Christ's rebuke to them was that their ambition was really no different than the ambition of pagan rulers. I mean, talk about a humiliating uh, rebuke. So, in effect, he was saying, to want to be greatest in the kingdom of Christ smacks of the same self-centeredness of being great on any of the other scoreboards of life. And sometimes we have a hard time sorting through whether our motives are pure, even in terms of our ambitions. That was certainly the case with David. Uh, for example, uh, we already saw in 1 Samuel, when he wanted to kill Nabal, uh, Abigail's husband, he went from being driven with a passionate glory, uh, desire to glorify God, and he was moved by Satan to have a completely self-centered ambition, and Satan did it just like that, just like that. And so I think we need to think about this whole issue of ambition and pray that God would enable us to have that grace-driven governed by God's laws and focused on God's glory. And in this chapter, I think it's just a beautiful contrast between the humanistic ambition of the Amalekite and the godly ambition of David. We're not talking about uh, the uh, you know, ambition being the problem. It's not the problem at all. Uh, it's the focus uh, that was the problem. Now, I've put in your bulletins, uh, in your outlines, a few questions that can help to uncover the humanistic ambition of the Amalekite. And the first question there is, why did he switch sides in verse 2? Now, there is huge debate among commentators as to whether he was a, a mercenary in Saul's army or a mercenary in the Philistine army or maybe a servant that belonged uh, there or, or something, uh, something else. Um, most believe that he probably had to have been serving in one or the other of the uh, armies there. I don't think there's any question on that. So why did he leave either army to come and join David? The only conclusion I believe can be reached logically is that he believed David was now a more useful tool for his own advancement than either Saul or the Philistines, one or the other uh, of those would be. He didn't have any change in religion. He didn't have any change of his loyalties to uh, Amalek. And chapter 4, verse 10, which we'll look at in a bit, indicates that uh, the scoreboard of his life was the same as Donald Trump's, or at least what's purportedly uh, Donald Trump's. And this bright idea for advancement and for riches made this Amalekite think, hey, that three-day quick run down to Ziklag is worth it. 
It was worth it to give up that solid gold crown and the gold bracelets uh, to David, and that would have been uh, quite a bit of value. It was worth it for him to put all that dust and ashes uh, on his head. Ambition can motivate people to make great sacrifices. Now, earlier he had obviously made a sacrifice in leaving the land of Amalek and going to join one or the other of these uh, two armies. And even being on the battlefield was uh, a risk-taking that he thought was worthwhile in terms of pursuing his ambition. People who are ambitious will often go to great lengths and make great sacrifices to get what they want. And in some ways, the sacrifices that this man here made may have seemed to people like it made him into an honorable man. This guy must have incredibly godly character. Look at what he's giving up for David. Look at the sacrifices that he has made. And yet some people would uh, look at that and, and they, would, they would say, can this really be the selfish ambition that the New Testament describes it as, as being? Uh, because how could it be selfish if he is sacrificing and if he is giving up so much? Well, who is the beneficiary of all of the sacrifices? Uh, was he doing this out of love for Saul? Chapter 4, verse 10 absolutely denies it. and We'll look at that in a bit. Uh, was he doing it out of love for Israel? Again, chapter 4, verse 10 denies it. In fact, he, he abandons Israel and he comes to be with David. Was he doing it for the benefit of the Philistines? Clearly not. Uh, the only motives that I can see for his sacrifices are self-driven, self-centered motives. Philippians 2, 3 through 5 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition. And the Greek word for selfish ambition there can mean one of three things. It can mean to gain influence, position, status, or office through manipulation or through unfair means. Or... It can mean to do what is right, but you're doing it just for what you can get, what you can gain out of it, or to be mercenary. Okay, one of those three meanings, and they really overlap. James 3, 14 through 16 says, This kind of selfish ambition does not come from the Lord, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. So this Amalekite could have been motivated by either the world, the flesh, or the devil, or all three working together in concert. What God made, he put into Adam and Eve ambition to fulfill their calling in a way that pleases God, but sin perverted that, turned it around, and turned it into selfish uh, ambition. And point three in your outlines there, sub-point three, highlights this even more with the bootlicking that was going on. And I think bootlicking is a little bit more polite term than some of you guys uh, use. But verse two says he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. What's with that? I mean, his, his own soldiers didn't do that, and even defectors from Israel didn't do that. In verse 10, he calls David, my Lord. He gives exaggerated recognition because he wants exaggerated recognition in his life. Because he desperately wants to be highly esteemed, he assumes that David wants to be highly esteemed. And in this he very badly misjudged uh, David's character. But bootlicking is a common feature of selfish ambition. Even, even politicians do it. You may not recognize it right off the bat. What they're doing with their constituents many times amounts to that. On March 9, 1832, when Abraham Lincoln was 23 years old, and he was just beginning his uh, political career, 
he, he made actually a public proclamation that, that I've gotten. He, he said this in there. Every man is said to have his peculiar ambition. Whether it be true or not, I can say for one that I have no other ambition so great as that of being truly esteemed of my fellow men. He was admitting that his main life goal was to be esteemed by others. His driving ambition for even getting into politics was to have people think well of him and, and, and to like him. And it was only through the hard knocks of the war and the constant mockery and vilification, sometimes deserved, uh, that he began to have his ambitions adjusted and he eventually came to say the exact opposite. And to me, this shows maturity uh, in Lincoln's uh, life. Toward the end of his life, he said, don't worry when you're not recognized, but strive to be worthy of recognition. Now, there's a big difference between those two. If your driving ambition is to be recognized by other people, you've got an idol in your life. Automatically, it is selfish ambition. But if your driving desire in, in life is to please God and to be faithful to Him, what's going to happen is you're going to have the, the character that's developing within you that makes you worthy of recognition and you're going to have that character developing within you so that when you get that recognition, you're not going to become proud. You're not going to, to fall. And so Paul's greatest ambition in life is stated in 2 Corinthians 5.9 where he says, Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. To Him. Uh, and the test of whether what you're doing, you're doing as pleasing to Him, is whether you persevere in doing the right thing when nobody else is around to notice that you are doing the right thing. But bootlicking was a symptom of selfish ambition. The fourth question is, why was he even in the camp of Israel in the first place? Had he converted to the religion of Israel? I mean, there were people who did that. You can think of Uriah the Hittite. You can think of the Cherethites and the Pelethites later on in David's uh, 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 ministry as a king. But the narrative, I think, makes it very clear that this man had not converted to the religion uh, of Israel. His presence was purely mercenary. Now, if he was a mercenary for Saul, it was only until Saul could no longer serve his ambitions. If he was a mercenary in the Philistine army, he was still a mercenary, a man who had ambitions and whose loyalty was only to himself. In verse 6, he claims that he just happened by chance to be in the middle of a huge battlefield. Extremely unlikely. Okay? If you aren't a combatant, you tend to flee from the battlefield, and his presence there as an Amalekite highlights his selfishness no matter which of the three theories that you might hold to. If, for example, he didn't serve either army, he's just a guy that snuck in there and he's trying to loot, you know, and avoid uh, any contact with the other armies, he's still doing it uh, for a selfish uh, mercenary, uh, monetary uh, 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 goals. If he served Saul, he shows his mercenary character by abandoning Saul as soon as a better deal comes up. And if he served the Philistines, same conclusion could be reached. Uh, the sixth question, why had he brought things so valuable to David? This was gold. Was he being generous with David? And the answer is no. In chapter 4, Chapter 4, verse 10, David interprets this whole passage in these words. 
When someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him, had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. So he obviously wanted more than the value of that gold that he had given to, uh, to, to David. It's evidence, uh, David's interprets it anyway, as evidence of selfish ambition. And this selfish ambition makes for a fun story for any Jew who was reading this story. So let's, let's, let's go through, beginning at verse 1. Now it came to pass, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites. There's a bit of humor here. Here's an Amalekite who's going for advancement and riches from a guy who's devoted to killing all the Malachites, okay? And so David has picked up the mantle that Saul had let slide, and uh, he is um, following God's command to kill all the Malachites, probably at a time that, that Saul was, uh, had hired maybe Amalekites. And the irony is that Saul, who had been rejected from his kingship for the precise reason that he refused to kill all Amalekites, was killed by an Amalekite. But at any rate, this Amalekite was clueless, absolutely clueless on what drove David. He assumed that David was just like him. He's somebody who uses other people uh, for his own advancement, and why wouldn't he want to use me? Why wouldn't he consider me valuable since I have killed his enemy? In verse 2, the Amalekite puts on a good show. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell on the ground and prostrated himself. Now, David probably thought this was a little bit ludicrous if he realized at this point that he was an Amalekite. We don't know that for sure until the the Amalekite said so. But there was a centuries-old hatred of the Amalekites for Israel, and of course God had commanded in Exodus that there would be perpetual warfare against Amalek and that no Jew should ever show any pity to an Amalekite. So really what this Amalekite is doing here, he's got absolute blindness. And that's one of the things that happens with selfish ambition. It makes us blind. It makes us blind to danger. Now, it's possible that Saul had already paved the way to this blindness by hiring uh, Amalekites. He had, after all, hired Doeg the Edomite, who was a vicious enemy of, uh, of God. And, and probably the reason, he thought those guys could be more manipulated than the Israelites could. Uh, but if indeed he had been hired by Saul, the Amalekite may have assumed that David was just as self-absorbed as Saul was. But whatever army this young man was a part of, his ambition blinded him to the danger. And if you want some cool stories on how selfish ambition can totally blind you, you can read Shakespeare's Macbeth or read Shelley's book, Frankenstein. Fun stories that talk about this. But in any case, I think it's a warning. We need to realize ambition can blind us if we're not careful. Now, this guy from Amalek is used to feeling his way into how he should react. He's used to playing conversations, reading people's expressions, and responding appropriately, and I'll explain why I believe that. But commentaries point out that all through these verses, he is fishing for reactions from David. 
<clears throat> he's uh, trying to get clues as to which side that he should be loyal to because he's not, he's not certain uh, about that. Uh, coming morning was probably the safest way to come because that could be interpreted in different ways depending on how David reacts. He could say, well, I was, I was mourning because some of my Philistine friends had gotten killed. Or he could say, I'm mourning because David and Jonathan got killed. Or Israel has had a, a major uh, route. So it was a safer way. He doesn't play all of his cards at one time. He's looking for reactions. Now take a look at verse 3. David said to him, where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. The commentators point out that this is very ambiguous. Was he claiming to be a Philistine mercenary who had been captured by the Israelites and he had escaped from them? Or was he claiming to be an Israelite or at least a mercenary of Israel and they had been overrun by the Philistines and he had escaped uh, from, from their capture? Uh, commentators point out it's deliberately vague. He gives just enough to try to elicit a reaction from David and perhaps get information that will give uh, more clues. Now David, unfortunately for him, is a guy that's kind of hard to read. Uh, David plays his cards, you know, close to his chest. After all, he's been 16 months in Ziklag, right? Pretending to be an ally of, uh, of Achish. And so I'm sure David has a non-committal expression on his face. And then David tosses the ball back into the Amalekites' hands to see what information he could get. Verse 4, Then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. And he's probably hoping, Okay, I'm going to throw this out, that Jonathan and John, uh, Jonathan and, and Saul are dead, and just see what kind of reaction that I get uh, from David on this. And on David's part, he's not sure about this young man either. Is he on the side of the Philistines? Does he know that I went up with Achish uh, fighting against uh, the Israelites, or at least pretending to be fighting against the Israelites? Why has he come to me? Or is this young man working for Saul, like Doeg the Edomite? He needs more information. Verse 5. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? So now the young man has to venture more information, but he's still very cagey. In fact, commentators point out that his story changes slightly. He had earlier said that he escaped from the camp of the Israelites, but look at what he says in verse 6. As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, what's with happened to be by chance on Mount Gilboa. That's a little bit different from his earlier story. You see, he, he doesn't know yet whether to be on the side of the Philistines because David had gone up with the Philistines to fight or whether to be on the side of Israel because David is an Israelite. And David is in exile. He knows that. So he opts for a third more neutral option that he just happened to be wandering around when he stumbled onto Saul dying. You don't just happen to be on Mount Gilboa, you know. When they've been lined up since the evening before, they've been fighting all day. You don't just happen to wander in into that big, ferocious battle. And because there is evidence of at least one lie in this man's story, there are some commentators who say, hey, the whole story he gives is a total lie. He probably wasn't even at the battle scene. He shows up later on maybe to pilfer stuff from these uh, bodies. And he stumbles on this and he says, ooh, maybe I can make some money uh, and I'll take this gold crown and, and the other. And that's possible. He was simply a looter. 
But I uh, agree with those um, commentators uh, who say there's enough truth to his story that he must have, he must have seen Saul while he was alive. Uh, he must have uh, been able to actually finish off Saul just like Josephus claims. But everyone seems to be in agreement. He is throwing out this line just to be able to feel out David a bit more. Now, apparently it doesn't help because he has to just keep giving more information. Let's read verses 6 through 10. Then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on a spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Now he didn't realize it, but this is the first little bit of information that has spelled his death, as far as David is concerned. And because I preached on this two weeks ago, I'm not going to say a lot now, but let's read verses 9 and 10. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Now again, he's trying to cover his bases, uh, wanting credit for having killed Saul, just in case, you know, that would get him some credit. But at the same time, he, he, he says, you know, Saul invited me to do this just in case killing a king was not kosher and uh, you might get in trouble over that. And he adds in there, and by the way, he was going to die anyway, so it's a mercy killing. And I'm wondering if he even threw that in because he's reading the faces of some of these men and seeing reactions, hey, that's not so cool. So there's enough truth in what he says here. I believe the Amalekite did indeed kill Saul. But by bestowing the royal crown and by bestowing the royal bracelets on David, he's pretending to be sacrificial. He's probably got the money bags from them and from a bunch of other people as well. He doesn't hand that over, but he's pretending to be sacrificial and he's hinting that he wants David to be the next king and he is quite willing to be his servant, his loyal servant. By calling David Lord, bowing before him, he's seeking to hitch his wagon to a new rising star. And so there's a lot of shrewd insight that this young Amalekite has, and he must have realized, hey, David is the next up-and-coming guy that I need to please, whose back I need to scratch if I'm going to be successful in, 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 in my rising ambitions. In chapter 4, verse 10, David concludes that the Amalekite wanted riches and position for having brought the news to him. Now, what was probably totally surprising to the Amalekite was that the wonderful, glorious news that he brought of the death of David's enemy, his arch enemy, actually produced sorrow in David, not joy. Uh, people with selfish ambitions tend to project their own attitudes onto other people, think everybody else is just as self-seeking and uh, have a, a just as much self-ambition as I do. But uh, David's reaction was utterly unexpected. Therefore, David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Now, I want you to notice, it's not David claiming to be mourning. No, it's the inspired narrator who says he did mourn. Okay, this is not hypocrisy. Um, verses 12 and 13. And they mourned and wept and fast until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who had told him, 
Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. David wants to make sure he is not making a mistake, that he's not killing a convert to Judaism like Uriah the Hittite would have been. <coughs> but the Amalekite seals his faith by admitting that he's an Amalekite, one of the people that David had devoted to death. Verse 14. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So I think I've given enough evidence here that the, the Amalekite is a great example of the selfish ambition that the Bible condemns. And what we're going to do now is take a very, very quick look at David and how he illustrates the exact opposite, godly ambition. The opposite of selfish ambition is not laziness. Okay, it's not lack of ambition. No, it's a great ambition to fulfill your calling before God, but to do it in God's way, in God's timing. Okay, the first characteristic I want to highlight from David's ambitious character is that he did not have a dog-eat-dog -dog mentality. He wanted to enter more and more into God's calling, but he wasn't going to step on people in order to do it. Uh, on the contrary, he was willing to lay down his life for others. And if you look at the first half of verse 1, it's alluding to the story we looked at before of that heroic rescue of his, uh, his sons and daughters and his wives and all of the other people's wives that were out there. It was 400 men basically diving like, um, like hornets into a camp of tens of thousands of Amalekites. Now, if you've got selfish ambition, you're not going to tend to take those kind of risks. But if you've got ambition for the Lord, you might. We saw in 1 Samuel 30 that David's ambition to be faithful to God enabled him to keep on keeping on despite weariness and pain, loneliness and stress. Uh, someone once said, No power in the world can keep a first-class man down or a fourth-class man up. Uh, David was a first-class man. He, he had incredible ambition, and nothing could keep him down. I believe the strength of his ambition came from the fact that he was anchoring it in God, not in creation. Okay, the second characteristic of David's ambition was that it was compatible with generosity. And we saw a couple of weeks ago that David was incredibly generous with all of the loot that he had given and, and, and benefiting the, the southern Judahites who had been uh, savaged. Now contrast that with the Amalekite. He already had a solid gold crown, gold bracelets. Since he had been stripping the dead, he probably had the money bags from Saul and his sons and maybe other soldiers as well. He didn't volunteer those things. So he could have had wealth from the gold that he got, but he was not content with that. His was the kind of ambition that becomes a black hole that eventually consumes you. And he reminds me of the story of Charles Darwin when he was a little boy. Uh, apparently, he started being interested in biology very, very young, even before uh, school age. And he had a huge insect collection. And one day, he had a rare beetle in one hand, and he had uh, another one in the other hand, and he spied a third beetle that he just felt he absolutely had to have, but these things were squirming so much, he didn't quite know what to do. 
and quick as a wink, he put one of the beetles into his mouth for safekeeping and then grabbed the other beetle, but this beetle squirted acid down his throat, and in the coughing spasm that happened, he lost all three beetles. Okay, that's what happened to this Amalekite, right? Now, in contrast, David had learned how to have contentment. Even when he was poor, he was contented. In fact, even beyond contentment, even when he was poor, he had learned how to be generous. He was very generous all through those years. And because he had learned it there, he was able to be generous when he became more wealthy. For David, money was a tool. It was not an end in itself. He was there as a steward of God, and that enabled him to keep his ambition from making him get into avarice. It's so easy for that to happen. Third characteristic of David's ambition was that it was accompanied with sincerity. Now, if you were an Amalekite and you were reading this chapter, which you probably wouldn't be doing, but if you were reading it, you'd look at verses 11 through 12 and you'd say, ah, oh, David's play-acting just like the Amalekite was play-acting. I mean, that's, that's what life's all about, right? It's a big game with a big scoreboard. And uh, all he's doing is play-acting. Well, if he was really play-acting... Who was David trying to impress? Who was he trying to fool? If you think about it, there really isn't anybody that he would have done that. Why would he be trying to fool this Amalekite who he's now going to kill? Because he's already got all the information. Why does he need to fool him any further? And he wouldn't be trying to fool his men because they already know his heart on this issue of killing Saul. I mean, at the risk of offending his men two times before, he has absolutely refused to kill King Saul when he had the opportunity uh, to do so. And uh, so there really wasn't anyone else to try to fool. It was not play acting. And I think simple logic will tell you this was genuine sorrow that he had for two great men uh, who had fallen. Now, we've got more than simple logic, though. We've got the inspired narrator's account that he was mourning. But the clincher for me is the tribute to Saul and Jonathan in verses 19 through 27, which Lord willing we'll look at in a couple of weeks. That is an inspired song that David wrote that shows his heart. And so by inspiration, we know that he was sincere in his mourning. It was showing his heart was connected uh, with God's heart. So this verse demonstrates, or those verses there demonstrate David's sincerity. The fourth thing that I see about David's ambition was that it was careful. Now, some ambitious people, they shoot first and apologize later. And you've probably seen people like that. They just steamroll over everybody. And one of the reasons they do that is they are so focused in on their ambition, focused in on their goal, that they either don't notice, if you're being kind to them, or they don't care that they are running roughshod over people or that they are uh, disobeying uh, God's law, but they're not careful. Now, in verse 13, David double-checks his information to make sure he's not making a mistake. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. Now, David had already asked that question before. Why does he repeat himself? And one commentator said, He is simply trying to make sure that he's got the right information. He's double-checking. He's exercising due diligence to, <clears throat> to make sure this man either isn't a legitimate combatant or has not converted to uh, the God of Israel or something else that did not warrant the death penalty. 
But the answer the Amalekite makes it clear, he deserved death on at least two counts. First of all, he's an Amalekite whom God has already condemned uh, to death, and he's not willing to disassociate himself from being an Amalekite. Second, by practicing euthanasia, not fighting, but euthanasia, and we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, he had engaged in murder, and in this case, murder of God's anointed. And so David's ambition was not a reckless ambition. It was a careful ambition. The fifth characteristic that we see about David's ambition is that it was directed Godward. Verse 14 reminds us, I think, of language we've heard earlier, of David's constant stance, even when he had opportunities to kill Saul. Let's read verse 14. So David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Now, if this was the first time David had said this, we might have been a little bit cynical and thought, you know, it, does he really care about Saul? Come on. I mean, Saul has been so mean-spirited to him. But from 1 Samuel, we know he did care about this principle. David's men, on the other hand, had a little bit different kind of ambition. They wanted Saul dead. They wanted to kill him. Saul himself was blown away by David's principled patience and trust in God. Let me read that for you, remind you of it from 1 Samuel 24. Saul told him, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me, for when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Saul could see the difference between his own selfish ambition and David's ambition. Did David have ambition to be a king? Absolutely, yes, because God had called him to be a king. But he was not willing to enter into his calling except for in God's way and in God's timing. In fact, in chapter 26, when Abishai got really upset with David for not killing Saul, David said, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And so this really does show a Godward patience and a Godward trust. And unless ambition is Godward and God-centered, it will get us into trouble. Uh, George W. Truett very famous uh, preacher in uh, Texas, was invited to dinner at the home of a very wealthy oil man. And after the meal, he was led to a place where they could see quite well all of his property. And pointing to the wells that were punctuating the landscape, the oil man boasted, 25 years ago, I had nothing. Now, as far as you can see, it's all mine. Looking at the opposite direction, at the sprawling fields of grain, he said, that's all mine. Turning east toward the huge uh, herds of cattle, he said, they're all mine. Then pointing to the west and the beautiful forest, he said, that too is all mine. And then he paused, expecting Dr. Truett to compliment him on his success. But Dr. Truett placed one hand on this uh, man's shoulder, pointed his other hand to heaven, and he said, how much do you have in that direction? And that's a good question. That's a good question. Brothers and sisters, our ambition must always be Godward. We must patiently wait for God 
to prosper our efforts. We need to only enter into our calling in God's way and in God's timing. And when God says wait, like he told David to wait, we need to wait. Even if we've got that driving urge to fulfill this ambition, we need to wait. And when God says no, we need to adjust our ambition to please the Lord. But uh, ultimately, our ambition must be an ambition to please God. The sixth characteristic of David's ambition was that it was consistent. David's execution of the Amalekite was not expediency. He had no change whatsoever with his attitude toward Amalekites, no change whatsoever with his attitudes toward King Saul. Um, Consistency is a rare virtue indeed. And I want to read a portion of an article written in the Presbyterian Review in 1866. So the great want of this age is men, men who are not for sale, men who will condemn wrong in friend or foe, in themselves as well as others, men whose consciences are as steady as the needle to the pole, men who will stand for the right, though the heavens totter and the earth reels, men who can tell the truth and look the world right in the eye, Men who neither brag nor run, men who neither flag nor flinch, men who can have courage without shouting it, men in whom the hope of everlasting life still runs deep and strong, men who know their message and tell it, men who know their business and attend to it, men who are not too lazy to work nor too proud to be poor, men who are willing to eat what they have earned and to wear what they have paid for, men who are not ashamed to say no with emphasis. And in short, what that journal was saying is we may need men like David, men with the consistency of character that he had. The last thing that characterized David's ambition was that it was loving. Now, Lord willing, in two weeks we'll look at verses 17 through 27, but those verses show the heart that David had toward his competitors, Saul and Jonathan. They were competitors to the throne for for David, right? And what happens when you've got a strong, strong ambition? The tendency is to do away with all of the competition, right? But we don't see that in David. He never felt he had to tear Saul or Jonathan or any of them down. He always blessed them. He always valued them. And he continues to do that in this chapter. And too many times ambition makes people so competitive that they become unloving, ungracious, and unkind. In order to climb the ladder of success, they've got to always be stepping on people's toes and stepping on their heads and kicking them off the the ladder altogether. Uh, Those are indicators of humanistic ambition. Godly ambition should never make us step on people's heads to climb the ladder of success unless God has consigned them, you know, judged them just like he did with the Amalekites. But David's ambition was tempered with agape love. Now, of all of the characteristics of David's ambition that we've looked at, I think point E is perhaps the most important. And I want to end with a story that I think shows why a Godward ambition helps us to have David's success. Uh, Back during the the days when telegraph was the main means of long-distance communication, there was a company that put an ad in the paper Uh, for a job opportunity as a Morse code um, operator. 
And a sign on the receptionist counter instructed the job applicants to fill out the application form and then wait in that room until they were summoned to enter into the inner office. And so there was a room full of men that were waiting. And at one point, another young man came into the room. He filled out the form. He sat down with the others, but he only waited for a, a minute or two. And then he went into the inner room. Well, I've got everybody's attention because what's he going in there for? They, they were kind of taken aback at the audacity of this guy to go in because the, the, the sign says clearly right up there on the wall, wait until you're summoned to go in. So they thought, well, he'll get his comeuppance. But a few minutes later... The young man is brought out with the employer, and the employer said, Gentlemen, thank you very much for coming, but the job has been filled by this young man. Well, everybody was even more taken aback, and one man said, Wait a minute, I don't understand. He was the last one to come in here. We've never even gotten a chance to be interviewed, yet he got the job. That's not fair. And the employer responded, all the time you've been sitting here, the telegraph has been ticking out the message in Morse code. If you understand this message, then come right in. The job is yours. None of you heard it or understood it. This young man did, so the job is his. Now, I think all of those men probably had equal ambition. But this last young man had his ear perked to be listening. He was listening to the Morse code. And that's what I would urge you to do for the rest of your lives, to, yes, have strong, strong ambition to enter more and more into your calling. But make sure that your ears are tuned to the Morse code that God has given, that your whole goal in life is to please Him. And you're understanding the Scripture, and you're willing to follow it, even if it means to your own harm. That alone will keep your ambition from becoming dangerous. Make sure you can say with Paul... Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And may God prosper you as he prospered David. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. And it is our desire that we would have strong ambition to please you. And Father, that Satan would not be able to unanchor that ambition uh, from Jesus Christ but that the cross of Christ would hold us and keep the needle of the compass of our life pointed to true north. Uh, Father, uh, where ambition has blinded us, I pray that you would take the scales off of our eyes and that you would enable us to sing all for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my ransom powers, everything that is in us. May they flow with a strong, strong ambition to serve you, to please you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.